This is Archive Atlanta, episode 17, Piedmont Park. You're listening to Archive Atlanta, a history podcast where each week I'll be sharing a story about the people, places, and events that shape the history of the city of Atlanta. I'm your host, local tour guide, and total history nerd, Victoria Lemos. Happy New Year, everyone! I hope that everybody had a safe and happy New Year's Eve celebration. I stayed up past midnight for the first time in probably a decade, and I think I'm still suffering from the lack of sleep. Old age people, I do not recommend it. This week, I'm finally doing another Atlanta park, and dare I say it's the most well-known park in Atlanta. Of course, that's Piedmont Park. We can safely say that almost every person in Metro Atlanta has been there for at least an event or gone through it, whether it's the Dogwood Festival, Music Midtown, or my favorite, finish line of the Peachtree Road Race. I think it's one of those places that we pass through without giving it much thought, and while I cannot cover all of the current features and events of the park, today I just want to talk about the area before it was a park, how it became one, and some unique places inside and a few historical events that happened there. First, let's talk about the city's park history. I think I briefly mentioned in episode 4, but Atlanta's first public park dates back to 1858, and it was a small public square at the intersection of Pryor Street, Decatur Street, and Central Avenue. So right where kind of the heart of Five Points is in downtown Atlanta right now, in 1876, there was another park located near where City Hall is, but the land was eventually sold to the state of Georgia to build the Capitol building. Park space was a high priority for the city of Atlanta, as it was for cities all over the United States. I don't want to get too far off topic, but before the creation of these official public parks, cemeteries were serving that function. The Garden Cemetery movement was taking off up north, and when Oakland Cemetery first established, they sort of jumped on that Garden Cemetery bandwagon, so to speak. That being said, we could make an argument that Oakland Cemetery was really the city's first unofficial park, but I'm going to save that and we can get more into it when I do um, a whole episode on Oakland. So the city is actively searching for parkland and they get a little bit of temporary relief when LP Grant donates 100 acres of his property to form Grant Park. If you're interested in that, download episode four, which is all about Grant Park. By the turn of the century, they would soon purchase the land to form Piedmont Park. But we're skipping ahead. So let's go back to the beginning. When you start a story in Atlanta, it must always start with Native Americans. This has got to be its own future episode, but just to make things kind of easy for you guys to understand, the two tribes most often mentioned when I'm talking about the present-day Atlanta area is the Creek um, and Cherokee Indians. Around 1821, the Creek Indians are robbed of their land, and after 1825, practically all of the land in Georgia, including what we now think of as Atlanta, is made available for white settlers to purchase. The first white man to own the land, which is now Piedmont Park, is named Elijah Patty, and he would go on to sell his property to Judge Walker. Judge Samuel Walker arrives in Fulton County in the 1820s from Greene County, Georgia, and by the 1830, he purchases 189 acres of this farmland for about $450, and he goes on to build a small log cabin right in the middle where that active oval is today. He serves as judge in the Fulton County Inferior Court 
from 1853 to 1856. And he also operates a mill in on this land. Um, and the mill was near where Piedmont Road and 15th Street is. By 1857, his son, Benjamin Walker, takes over the farm, builds a new log cabin, and also runs the mill on the property. A decade later, the Walker family builds their third house up on the hill, and this time they're using feel stones from the farm, so it's like a stone house. The round millstone, salvaged from the mill, was actually used over the front door. Now, a year after building that house, Benjamin Walker would sell his property to the Gentleman's Driving Club for about $38,000. If the Gentleman's Driving Club doesn't ring a bell, it's the original name of the Piedmont Driving Club. But the club has nothing to do with cars. The club began in 1887 when a group of wealthy, white, Christian Atlanta men were looking for land where they could drive and race their horses and their carriages, kind of like a track of sorts. They settled on this land. Um, They carved a racetrack out of the hills where the ball fields are today, which is really cool to think about. And their clubhouse became the Walker House. So if you stroll down the sidewalk today in front of the Piedmont Driving Club, look and you can see that same field stone, um, that round millstone above the door is still there. I have a photo though, not the greatest photo, but I have a photo for you guys on the website. In 1887, the driving club sells the land to the Piedmont Exposition Company, which was pretty much comprised of members of the Piedmont Driving Club. So although it's a sale on paper, the shareholders of this new company were all club members. Officially, Charles Collier is the president, and Henry Grady is vice president of this new corporation. The idea was to hold the Piedmont Exposition, a state fair, that would showcase the products being created in the South and the attractions of the region. Keep in mind the time period. This is not long after the war, and the whole quote-unquote New South thing is being pushed and promoted by its creator, Henry Grady. We wanted the country to see Atlanta as capital of the South, the place where new and exciting things are happening, that whole slavery thing. Forget about that. Sorry. (laughs) Like, this was also kind of an audition, if you could say, for hosting the World's Fair. So the executive committee of the World's Fair was actually invited to this Piedmont Exposition. The land had been used as farmland by the walkers, so large amounts of manpower were needed. The Fulton County chain gang was part of the force preparing this space for this exposition. And I want to make sure you guys know that these chain gangs are majority African-American and comprised of men that were arrested for petty offenses. And this whole convict leasing thing starts around this time, um, really in the response of the abolishment of slavery. Yes, this topic needs its own episode, but I think it's important to have all of this information when you're experiencing a place. So, you know, the ground that you're seeing was really worked into this show place, mostly by um, chain gangs. They had the grounds graded, roads were built, shrubbery was cut, trees cleared, massive amounts of material are being brought in by train, work is being performed around the clock to prepare for this big event. Henry Grady would keep the public informed via newspaper columns, and then a large ad ran the night before. I love primary sources like this. The text says, quote, Atlanta wants you, don't fail her, exclamation point, end quote. There was going to be speeches, concerts, art galleries, and even a bicycle parade. It opened on October 10th, 1887, to great crowds, 
The highlight of the Piedmont Exposition was certainly the visit by President Grover Cleveland. Over 50,000 people were there to hear the president's closing speech. And all in all, you can say the it was a huge success. It really paved the way for another large exposition about eight years later. In 1895, the Cotton States and International Exposition was a three-month-long fair that would further highlight this progressive post-war South and its great potential. It had 6,000 exhibits, six states were represented, as well as a sole building dedicated to women and one for African Americans. Quick point about that, the original creators did not want to include Um, what they called the Negro Building, but they asked for federal funding. And the federal government was like, listen, you're Atlanta, Georgia. If you're not going to include newly freed slaves, you know, African-Americans in this thing, we're not going to give you the money. They sort of ceded to that um, and invited three or four big names in the Black community that I'm going to mention in a minute. The purpose of this um, fair, if you, if you want to call it that, was to showcase the latest in technology. And they actually had kind of a rudimentary Ferris wheel, and they showed a very early version of a motion picture. Um, so like the first movie, but it was so rudimentary that people weren't really thrilled with it. Opening day was September 18th, and it was marked by many speeches. But the most famous one is known as the Atlanta Compromise considered to be one of the most important speeches of the 20th century, African-American scholar Booker T. Washington stood for the first time in front of a racially mixed audience and shared his response to the quote-unquote Negro problem, which was the question of what to do about the failing social and economic conditions for blacks in the South, as well as the relationship between white and black people um, in the South. It was pretty much an appeal to the white elite saying that black citizens would work in the trades, that social integration was a folly. And the famous line um, from this of the races being, you know, quote unquote, separate as the fingers, yet one as the hand. This would put Washington in direct contrast with W.E.B. Du Bois, who would soon come to Atlanta to teach at Atlanta University. Now, I've really shortened that whole story. It's a, it's a big deal. I would definitely research that a little further if it sounds interesting for you guys. The Negro building opened in the far corner of the park, very close to where Park Tavern is now. There's a huge open field. That's where it was. I took a picture. It's not the greatest, but I'm going to post that so you guys can see. The building opened about a month after the famous Booker T. Washington speech, and this space was a really big deal. It was the first designated exhibit since the abolishment of slavery that was dedicated solely to showcasing African-American achievement, art, craft, like it was had a lot of stuff in there. Um, There was exhibits from Spellman and Morehouse, who were then known as the Atlanta Baptist Female Seminary and the Atlanta Baptist Seminary. There was a woman's building as well over where the tennis courts are now. And if you listen to episode 11 on the Atlanta Women's Club, this is where Rebecca Douglas Lowe heard the speech that inspired her to start a club in her Atlanta home, which would eventually become the Atlanta Women's Club. There's a historical map of the fair's layout that I'm going to put on the website so you guys have a better idea of all the buildings and where they were. My favorite part of the map is this row of animal and country exhibits that border the edge of the park. So what is now 10th Street, Um, I think, I don't know if it's considered part of the Beltline, but there's a sidewalk and the bike lane. When you are walking down that sidewalk, 
Up on the grass was um, the animal arena. There was an ostrich farm, monkey paradise, and then peppered between were stalls for the German village, the Chinese village, and the Indian village. The sad thing is that all of these buildings were built with the expressed intent of being temporary. They weren't meant to last, so we don't have anything left to look at, but we do have the stone stairways. If you've wandered around the park, you can easily spot these, I call them ghost stairs, where they seem like they go to nowhere. Originally, these were steps to these big buildings, so steps to the women's building or steps to the, you know, whatever other building there was. Now, originally they were made of wood, but they uh, converted them to stone in the 1920s. At some spots, you can see stone wing walls, so you kind of see like the banister and then a stone wall to the side of it and these really huge urns. Most of them have plants inside. Those are all original to the 1895 exposition. So I took a photo for you guys, and I have it on this episode site, so you can take a look. After the exposition, there was talk of the fairgrounds being turned into an industrial cotton mill, but thankfully, a committee was formed, led by Benjamin Walker, which I love, and the idea was shelved. The city of Atlanta finally agreed to purchase this land. They had tried to sell it to them, I think, three times. They finally purchased it in 1904 as public park space. Spending about $100,000, they would get 185 acres, and they would leave the Piedmont Driving Club with four acres, which is, I think, exactly what they still have today. At this time, the city of Atlanta didn't reach out this far. So they actually expanded Atlanta proper to encompass the park. Um, They stretched it from 6th Street all the way to 15th Street so that they could benefit from the additional taxable property. Before the two expositions, the land was designed by Joseph Forsyth Johnson. But in 1909, you know, the city has it as park space, and they really wanted a new plan to change and transform this old fairground into a beautiful public space. The Olmsted brothers, sons of Frederick Law Olmsted, were hired to develop a master plan for Piedmont Park. Problem is, there were some budget issues, and we didn't really give them a blank check for the design, so the final 1912 plan was never really materialized. It had a great influence, and I think what the city did is kind of use it as a guideline, like, well, we can afford this. Um, This is a really good idea. Maybe in the future we'll do this. What I love is that the current master plan that's been adopted by the Piedmont Park Conservancy honors this original 1912 plan. Within the park, the visitor center is the oldest continually standing structure in the park. The Olmsted plan suggested that that spot was great for a boathouse, and instead they built a public comfort station, kind of like restrooms, um, in 1911, and that was funded by the sale of old exposition buildings. In 1996, it was restored as a visitor center, and although it was a rainy day when I biked around the park last time, I got a pretty good photo of this one too. Now, the active oval, if you don't know what I'm talking about, it's like a nice, flat, cleared-off area where um, there's a track around it, so there's always people playing flag football or running or some kind of sports, and there's a little gazebo in the middle. It might seem boring to the modern eye, But after I learned the park's history, it's really the most special spot in the park. This is the spot of Samuel Walker's cabin, sort of where it all began. But later on in history, it was also the site of the first football game between the University of Georgia and Auburn University. And listen, I'm not going to pretend I understand Southern college football. Not only am I a northerner, 
but I'm Spanish, so the only thing I ever watched growing up was soccer. But after living here this long, I do understand the rivalries and the obsessed fans, and I know that UGA versus Auburn is still a big deal. So imagine in 1892. They really promoted this in the paper. Hundreds of people made their way to the park before the start of the game, and about an hour before, there is a long line of carriages beginning rolling to the park, I'm assuming down Patriot Street. The teams wore unpadded uniforms and rugby caps. Can you imagine? The most important question, though, who won? And it was Auburn. Auburn beat UGA 10 to 0. Just a few years later, I think around 1904, the Atlanta Crackers baseball team, which I hope to do an episode on them in the future, but they would actually play their baseball games in the Oval until they built a stadium. At the back of the active Oval is a bust of Sidney Lanier. Lanier is a famous uh, poet, flute player, composer. He graduated from Oglethorpe University in 1860 and then went on to fight in the Civil War. This monument was erected in 1914, mainly with funds from Mrs. Livingston Mims. Um, her husband was mayor of Atlanta. And she was very felt very strongly about this. Uh, she actually bequeathed all of her jewels to pay for this monument. But the fun story about it is it became a target of kidnapping by college pranksters. So it was like a thing, like who could get the bust and what could it do to it? So the head of Lanier was stolen or vandalized dozens of times. And then the last incident, they found it at the bottom of Lake Claramere inside the park. Now, speaking of the lake, it was initially a man-made water feature created for that first exposition in 1887. It was 13 acres and they filled it by piping water from the Chattahoochee River, which was seven whole miles away, through newly laid city water mains. During the fair, there was boating, water slides, and even swimming. For the 1895 Cotton States Exposition, it was made a little smaller. So they made it 10 acres, and it would become an ice skating rink every winter until the 1950s. I really think they should bring that back. There are so many places in the park to talk about, and I really struggled with only mentioning a few, leaving some out, not talking about any of them. I mean, I could mention the famous Brutalist Playground, the Mayor's Grove, the Author's Grove, the Dogwoods, the statues, the sculptures, and even the plants and trees. There is something there for everyone. What I want to do is highly encourage you to take one of the free tours given by the Piedmont Park Conservancy. They are every Saturday morning, and I think it starts in March or April, but I will put a link to that in the show notes for anybody that wants more information. And that's all, folks. The early history of Piedmont Park and the hope that it helps someone listening to this appreciate it a little more. Personally, I find the size of the park overwhelming to explore solely by foot, but it's my favorite for biking. You can cover so much ground, truly explore all the nooks and crannies, I was there this past week. Um, it's been invaded a little bit by electric scooters, but honestly, I'm just happy to see people out exploring in a new way that they normally wouldn't. I know scooters are a hot topic right now, so I'm going to save that conversation for another day. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode, please share it or leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. If you're in the park taking photos, remember to tag hashtag archive Atlanta. I love seeing them. I love seeing new places through a different perspective. Have a great weekend and I will be back with a new Atlanta history next week. 